0: My whole objective here was just to really meticulously go through their document and show that they don't have a better command of the facts than we do. They're relying on bad data. They're relying on bad sources and academics, and um, they should do better.
1: Hello there. How are you all? You having a good week? I have recently just returned from the UK Bitcoin conference. I just want to say Jim Duffy and the Bitcoin Collective did an amazing job. I didn't know what to expect when I got there, but they've absolutely crushed it. So I'm looking forward to what they're doing next. I'm also going to be heading over to Switzerland this week for the Plan B conference in Lugano. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got one of my favorite Bitcoiners back on the show, Nick Carter, somebody who has dedicated so much of his time over the last few years for defending Bitcoin, promoting Bitcoin. So any chance I get to sit down with Nick and discuss Bitcoin, I will take it. Now back in September, the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy dropped a report. On the climate and energy implications of crypto assets. Now, as you might expect, this report turned out to be quite anti-proof of work. But what was perhaps a bit of a surprise was how poorly it was put together. Well, really, is it actually that much of a surprise? Probably not for some of you. It cited a whole bunch of sources that were utterly flawed, like DeVries and the Morat et al. paper, which we all know are absolute nonsense. So Nick stepped up, and wrote this brilliant article calling them out for their shoddy research and highlighting the flaws in the paper. So Danny reached out to Nick and said, come on, man, let's make a show about this. So when we were in Miami... We got Nick in. We ran through it, all their flaws, all the stupid shit they did in this report. So listen, I hope you enjoy this one. you got any questions about it, you can reach out to me or anything else. It's hello at did.com. But it's really important that we have people like Nick doing this work, pulling apart the absolute crap that comes from the mainstream media or the government when they're in fact entirely wrong and disseminating false information. So yeah, get in touch if you've got any questions about this or anything else. All right, Nick. How you doing, mate? Doing good. Good to uh, have you back on what Bitcoin did twice in two days. You keep making me do that. Well, every time we come to Miami. The two for one. Well, because sometimes we want to talk to you with somebody, and then while we're here we want to talk to you on your own.
0: We did it in Austin, now we're doing it here.
1: We're doing it here, man. Uh, It's good to see you uh, going out there doing some stuff for Bitcoin, working on Bitcoin doing what you've done historically, which is excellent fucking work, and we're very lucky to have you in the world of Bitcoin doing this, so...
0: I'm not quitting. I'm still here.
1: Well, you're a Bitcoiner, so that's why.
0: I can't be fired. You can't fire me.
1: I can fire you from what Bitcoin did. That's true. Actually.
0: That would be a mercy, please.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Fuck off. Right. The White House Office of Science and Technology Policy report on climate implications for crypto mining. Yeah. Fucking wankers! All right, so uh, I don't even. What's
0: the name of the guy? Who did the report? we have to be nice? We can't be too mean to them. They're probably going to listen to this episode. I wouldn't call doing the
1: Pinocchio scale being particularly nice.
0: <laughs> That's what Snopes does. I think it's you know it's all about you know the fact checking and the Pinocchios.
1: Right, okay. Well, let's dig into this. So, uh, I'd never heard of the White House Office of Science and Technology. Uh, don't know anything about them. Neither had I, to be honest. Uh, do we know what reports they've done on the use of energy within data centers or anything else?
0: I you know, haven't looked at their corpus. Um, they probably have you know, groused about, like, Apple and Google. They, you know, One thing Bitcoiners get wrong is they think only Bitcoin gets scrutiny on energy usage. It is really every industry. We just get extra scrutiny and I do think it's disproportionate. But it's not that other industries don't get asked about this stuff.
1: Right. Okay. So well, listen, let's uh, there's a lot you've there's a lot we can cover here. Cause there's the report, there's your reply to the port. Report and then there's your notes on the report. Um, but let's start with talking about the report itself. Uh,
0: who it was commissioned by specifically? Why it was commissioned? What do we know about this? The report was commissioned by our dear president, Mr. Biden. He did an executive order, and uh, he commissioned a zillion reports, and uh, a few of them were on crypto. There were so many, actually. So there's an executive order, I think, really on crypto. And one of them was about the energy usage. Uh, we know the White House has been thinking about this for a long time. They actually had me in to talk about it. Um, and I kind of told them what I'm going to tell you now. They didn't listen, clearly.
1: Wait, where Was that in a Senate testimony?
0: Hearing, no, no, no. no just... It was just a, a private briefing.
1: In, in the White House?
0: Well, it was on Zoom. But uh, oh, the, many it. of the people listening were... I mean, they were probably in their homes as well, but they were White House staff.
1: Is that slightly surreal that the White House is uh, giving you a call and saying, hey, Nicaragua, the president wants some information from you?
0: Well, it's mostly annoying, to be honest with you, <laughs> because they didn't listen to me, Peter. They didn't listen. So what's even the point? What's the point, guys?
1: I'm busy here,
0: man. (laughs) (laughs) I am busy. I was doing it out of the goodness of my heart. And then they totally disregard everything they said there at this horrible report. So I'm feeling very frustrated and disinclined to be helpful to them.
1: Well, if they're going to get the information from DeFries and uh, ignore you, they obviously, it feels a little bit like they maybe know the answer they want written. Right. And then they go and write it, it's selective.
0: I know they have been talking to other Bitcoiners too, so they have been doing some diligence. They did have some parts of the report that were uh, echoed things that Bitcoiners have said, especially about flare gas and using renewables and things like that. So they're not completely unaware of what Bitcoiners have to say about mining. They're just very dismissive of those things. Hmm. So the, yeah, Biden commissioned the report and then it kind of looked like they did this in a hurry, to be honest with you it didn't seem as rigorous as I would have expected. And uh, basically, they're just talking through the state of affairs, the status quo with Bitcoin mining, especially in the US, and then repeating a lot of the same talking points that we see, the critical ones. Um, And basically, they disparage a lot of the mitigating factors that Bitcoiners like to bring up about mining, and uh, they repeat a lot of hostile academia, they don't do a lot of original research of their own. That was one thing that disappointed me, and uh, they also then basically conclude by by uh, sort of broadcasting extremely high standards for what Bitcoin miners should do in terms of being like benign consumers of energy, which are standards I've not seen, you know, mentioned for any other industry. And then they also mention some possible ways to tackle Bitcoin mining in the industry, including possible legislation, possible bans, things like that.
1: How much do we know about their strategy with regards to energy and climate? Have they set any specific goals?
0: Well, there's the ESG movement, which the Biden administration is completely on board with, basically involves waging political warfare on oil and gas producers, so... Through a variety of methods, they've made it difficult for, in particular, oil and gas companies to operate for um, firms that would be fracking and you know, producing natural gas to produce that natural gas, right? They did this for the first two years of the admin, and then now we're in the energy crisis, and now it's more important than ever that we drill, that we produce natural gas, and we ship it to Europe, which is in the midst of a much worse energy crisis. But because of the administration's reticence to sort of support the fossil industry, um, for better or for worse, now there's a production crisis. And so instead of encouraging domestic production, there's so many things they could have done. They could have allowed pipeline construction. They could have done more permitting for natural gas. They could have... Uh, not waged war through the SEC, through the financial sector, on these public companies that are exploring and penetrating these wells. Now they're going to places like Venezuela and asking, and lifting sanctions on Venezuela and asking for them to produce. They're going to Saudi Arabia and they're begging them, embarrassing in my opinion, they're begging Saudi Arabia to increase production. They're begging OPEC to increase production. It's not working. OPEC is cutting production. We have an incredible abundance of energy in this country, and it's not really being taken advantage of. Instead, we're in a weaker position. We're having to go to countries that don't like us very much and beg them to increase production. Meanwhile, Europe is in the, grip, in the midst of a horrible energy crisis. We're basically bailing them out with liquid natural gas shipments from America, relatively cheap gas, which we are liquefying, shipping to Europe and helping them with their problems. Um, But yeah, the admin could have done a lot more. And the general trend from the Obama admin through now has been to marginalize the American energy sector. The other thing is there's been a ton of tax subsidies for wind and solar, which I support the emergence of wind and solar 100%. But it has meant that certain grids have become unbalanced. So they're very beholden to whether it's windy or not and um, that has left them in a weaker state. So Texas, California, uh, New England is also in a a kind of a bad state. These are places where the grids are performing less than optimally because, partly because there's been insufficient pipelines built, uh, but also because there's been a huge emergence of uh, subsidy fed wind and solar. Um, which isn't sort of bad on its own, but it does mean that it's harder to balance the grid. So it's been a kind of anti-energy administration so far from Biden. That's the general thrust of what they're doing. Now they're sort of trying to pivot a little bit.
1: anti-energy or anti-fossil fuel?
0: yeah, and anti sort of like thermal energy, yeah. um, thermal generation. And there hasn't been a big emphasis on nuclear, unfortunately. It's not like nuclear would solve our problems overnight because it takes so long. Mm-hmm. but there's been a lack of emphasis on nuclear. It's, I don't think there's been a new nuclear plant in the U.S. permitted since, like, the 70s or something unbelievable mm. in, in a long time. And so there's a lot they could have done, which would have, you know, mitigated the energy crisis we find ourselves in and lessened our depends, dependence on Venezuelans and Saudis and things like that. Um, so, But, you know, it seems like they are now realizing, politically, it's infeasible to have gas at $7 a gallon in this country. Um, and have these grids start to fail. So there might be an evolution in their tactics, but the general messaging has been, you know, pretty hostile to fossil fuels. Now, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not like an Alex Epstein kind of guy where it's. What like, do you make of him? I think I read his book. I think it's actually useful to have a perspective like that. Agreed. Um, I don't agree fully with his view. Um, I'm more of a moderate. Put me in like the Troy Cross camp. You know. Um, I do think we need an energy transition, but I think it's been done in an imprudent way. Um, And I don't necessarily believe that we can follow the the track that we're on in terms of encouraging tons of wind and solar and batteries and have that be sufficient. I'm not sure that's going to work in sort of the current way it's envisioned. It's causing issues here in Europe, California, Texas. So we do need thermal energy to tide us over and because it's been a rushed transition we're now resorting back to coal you know which is totally a step in the wrong direction natural gas is much better than coal in terms of its emissions profile we didn't encourage it enough and now you're seeing globally a ton of dependence on coal in New England, they could have built pipelines from these incredibly rich shale deposits that are nearby. Instead, they're importing gas from Africa, they're burning oil, which is worse. So I just think there's been a lack of prudence and a lack of sort of long-term thinking on this, or maybe a utopianism in terms of thinking the, and the green transition can happen on this schedule. I think it still can happen, but it's probably been too aggressive, is my view. Right. I
1: found the Venezuela one super interesting, because as a country which has been crushed by, I mean, I'm not letting them off the hook, they've crushed themselves, but they've also been crushed by sanctions. Now, to go to Venezuela and ask, hey, encourage them to... uh, I mean, what's the situation in Venezuela? Because I know what happened is, like, it's very... uh, It's a different type of oil, right? And uh, the cost of uh, mining the oil in Venezuela, I think, is... More expensive than most other places, which is why they ended up closing a lot of their refineries because it was just too difficult to mine. That's my understanding.
0: I'm no, definitely not an expert on Venezuelan yeah, oil. I'm sure, I'm sure that's what I read. Um, I mean, the sanctions I believe are mainly on the Maduro regime mm. and affiliates. I think part of the reason they're not producing a lot is because it's just been such chaos in yep. that country. I mean, it's very hard to have an industrial sector when you have hyperinflation. So, that's sort of my best guess, is what's going on there. There have been sanctions. It is weird now that we're asking them, you know, these, like, clearly not friendly regimes, we're asking them to, like, up their production, because we haven't done a good enough job domestically.
1: Which means the situation with sanctions is likely to change. But that could be a positive for Venezuela themselves.
0: Maybe, with well, yeah. the people. But uh, it's not clear how much of that wealth, the mineral wealth, will trickle down to the people.
1: Well, almost certainly. <laughs> It'll <laughs> it
0: benefit the elites. It'll benefit
1: the elites and uh, the regime, but at the same time, if there's a lift in the sanctions that helps people, I mean, uh, I don't know what the net positive here is, but you would hope so.
0: Yeah. I, hard to hard to know.
1: Okay. So, in terms of uh, the report, uh, let's start with the, the good bits, because like you said, it wasn't all negative. Um, what were the things that kind of like impressed with you with the report? Were well, there any section you thought, actually, you know, you, you've really like paid attention here, it, or do you think it was just lip service?
0: No, there are some decent bits. I mean, they acknowledge the Bitcoin miners, they might be using renewables where there's a lack of local demand. So they sort of acknowledge the location agnosticism of Bitcoin mining. And they acknowledge that Bitcoin miners are active in places like West Texas, where there's a lot of renewable generation and there's not a lot of demand because there's insufficient transmission. So they did acknowledge that. They then kind of walked that back a little bit. They also acknowledged that there is flare gas mining, which um, is actually a relatively small portion of Bitcoin's hash rate. If I had to guess, I would say it's under 500 megawatts.
1: What is a percentage
0: well, all, Even, of, say in the US. all of Bitcoin is around 10 gigawatts. Right. And so probably, if I'm doing the math right, less than 5% of Bitcoin's hash rate, and maybe much less.
1: Um, is there a, a lot more opportunity to flare gas? Are, are there, is there like an abundance of uh, these wells that are, are Is it uncapped? How do they refer to
0: them? Well, there, it's like you can have economically stranded gas. Yeah. So... When you are extracting oil, it's kind of a mix of gas and oil most of the time. And when you do initial penetration, you get a huge burst of gas. Typically, that gets flared off because often there's no pipelines around to capture it. Right. There's no economical use for the gas. It would be too expensive to build the pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. You want the oil. The gas is sort of a byproduct. So that's where the flaring comes from. And um, if you add it all up, yes, this could power Bitcoin a couple times over. Okay. However you would need miners to find that economical. It's probably not economical to go and identify all the wells globally, get these gen sets installed, do little small installations everywhere where the gas is flared. So I don't think that it will ever be 30 or 50% of Bitcoin's hash rate Clear gas mining. I think you'll find other stranded energy sources. Maybe you'll find a nuclear plant which can't sell power at night. You know, more larger installations, larger generation assets, which are underutilized. Uh, or, you know, wind farms, which are unable to sell the power to the grid, things like that. Do we, do we know how much
1: of uh, Bitcoin mining, say, again, in the U.S., comes from uh, the overproduction of
0: energy from, say, wind farms? or? We don't know right now, and that's part of the problem, okay. because there have been no good bottom-up studies It's only top-down studies. So Cambridge has like the -the state-of-the-art study that just came out recently, came out after this report. But their estimate was based on the energy mix at the state level or the national level. So they can triangulate Bitcoin hash rate to certain countries and to certain states in the US and provinces in China. But they don't know, they didn't go the extra mile of looking at where the actual Bitcoin mines are and the local energy they're consuming. So we still don't know and we still don't have a bottom-up registry. Like this, I would love for this to exist. I will help bring it into existence if I can get the resources to do this. I would love to have a bottom-up study where Bitcoin miners disclose freely what kind of energy source they're using. They're not currently doing that. So we don't know. And it's a shame because I think the reality is actually really good.
1: Do you have any kind of best-guess estimates?
0: We know that a bunch of miners... We know a a lot about the public miners in the US. So, you know, TerraWolf, for instance, a a lot of the ones I've interviewed on my show, they use nuclear power, they use um, hydropower. Uh, Bitfarms uses a lot of hydropower. Um, There's other um, renewable-focused miners, Iris Energy, CleanSpark. Um, Aspen Creek is an interesting one that just emerged. They are focusing on, uh, solar and wind. So there are individual miners that you can point to and be like, yes, they're using renewable. Uh, but there's also miners that are using thermal energy. There's no question about that. Um, so basically we have a data problem and, um, You know, the question is, what do you do when you're confronted with the lack of data? Do you make sweeping conclusions, which is what happens in the report? They rely on DeVries for all the emissions estimates. Or do you say, well, we don't know right now? I don't know. I think you should probably hedge a little bit instead of claiming that you know what the answer is.
1: Is DeVries the guy up in Berkeley?
0: So DeVries is a... I think I'm blocked by he's him. He's the Dutch Central Bank. Ah, go, he works for yeah. the Dutch Central Bank yeah. and he runs Dig Economist. Yes. He's the most cited person in the report by a lot, mm-hmm. which is crazy because he's not an academic. Right? Yeah,
1: I'm sure I've been blocked by him.
0: Yeah, he's, uh, he's not a good guy. <laughs> no.
1: no. He's uh, one of those people who clearly has a... Uh, it's weird how you get this with Bitcoin that people seem to just hate it.
0: So, yeah, this guy's like full time um, hobby for the last sort of eight years has been publishing erroneous estimates of Bitcoin's energy consumption, always aggressive estimates, i.e., like, too, it, he'll, whenever he does an estimate, it's way too high to make Bitcoin look bad. So, he came up with the e waste thing. Whenever you hear about Bitcoin e waste, it sources back to him. And he has his energy consumption index and then uh, greenhouse emissions estimates. They're all way, way too high. If you look at any, occasionally, you know, real academics do studies and they could devise their own estimates, like Cambridge, for instance. Mm. And they come in way lower, like a third, like much, much lower. This show is brought to you by Ledger.
1: Now, recent events this year have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. Plus. And the larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. The Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security of all Ledger products. And listen, I have been using Ledger products since 2017. Five years is crazy, right? And absolutely love everything they've done. They are my favorite wallet provider. And they have absolutely crushed it this year. Now, if you do want to find out more... If you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S H O P dot L E D G E R dot com. Next up is Bit Casino. Established in 2013, Bit Casino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. And not only do they have cutting edge security, but they also offer fast withdrawals and some amazing VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino out there. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is bitcasin dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledon. From savings and accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Leden's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Now, with recent events in the lending industry, Ledon demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, and they are building out one of the best financial service providers in Bitcoin. Now, they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation nonsense and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. They only support Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledden is there to support all your needs. Not only are they a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I love the service, love what they're doing, love the team, and I'm pleased to be working with them. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledden.io, which is L-E-D-N dot Also, we have the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th, this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known the team over at Swan for ages, Corey, Yan, Brady and they're pulling out all the stops to make Pacific Bitcoin a celebration of the Bitcoin community. And I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. I will be MCing the conference along with my good friend, Natalie Brunel and Stefan Avera And there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers. You know these people, Lynn Alden, Alice Gladstein, and Preston Pish. It's going to be great. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and fun with some unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator And they've loaded the conference with parties before and after the event. They're bringing together the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation state adoption mine into lightning. Now, you do not want to miss the inaugural Pacific Bitcoin Conference. I know it's going to be a special event. As I said, I cannot wait to get out there. I do love LA. Now, Swana are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That C B I T C O I N is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com, pacificbitcoin.com, and use the code PETER. Um, I'm going to jump around a bit, but in a scenario where Uh, more regulation would come in. What kind of regulation do you think would come from the federal government and what would be left to the states? Because uh, I don't think uh, the senators here in... Well, not here, in uh, Texas, where we were previously, would be very happy in a scenario where, say, proof of work was outlawed. Because there's a lot of business, a lot of jobs, a lot of revenue generated in the state uh, with miners. So what is the range of things that could happen?
0: It's hard to know. It really depends on if they decide to go scorched earth on mining. It would be weird for the U.S. federal government to say, this industry is a bad industry, and we know there's all these public companies that have duly purchased energy with their PPAs. Like, they have agreed to purchase energy for a number of years. We are now outlawing what they're doing, what kind of computation they're doing. There's not a lot of precedent for that. There's not a lot of precedent for the U.S. government saying, this is a bad industry. Even though they're operating fully within the law, we're going to make it illegal. So do did you see
1: a scenario where perhaps it might be uh, they ban mining, which is directly burning fossil fuels?
0: That's what uh, New York State, uh, they passed a bill doing that. Didn't it fail, That I don't think the governor signed it. I right. think it might be outstanding. She, I don't think she vetoed it either, but um, New York State basically passed a bill saying, if you are a behind-the-meter miner using thermal generation you can't mine Bitcoin, uh, which was a reaction to the GreenEdge energy plant in up- upstate New York.
1: Is that the one that was closed and they spun it back up?
0: Um, it was a coal plant yeah. that they transformed into a natural gas plant, and then they were mining Bitcoin behind the meter, so to speak, and then also selling energy to the grid. So in my mind, it was a good thing because you went from coal to natural gas, which is much cleaner, and you are you know, monetizing it through mining, but then also selling to the grid. So I don't have a problem with that.
1: Yeah, and I'm not so bored in it, but in a scenario where perhaps the mining of Bitcoin was outlawed using you know, the burning of fossil fuels, um, I wonder what kind of uh, reaction we would see, almost similar to when China banned uh, mining, that the, you know, the ASICs just moved around the world and the hash rate's all-time high. I wonder if uh, you would see, how many you would see leave the country, how much hash rate you'd leave the country, or you would just see a bigger a movement to be finding these other sources within the U.S.?
0: Well, yeah, so I don't know what the federal government has in store. I don't think they have the political capital to really do something like that. It's kind of like, I would maybe compare it to prohibition. Like, prohibition was a constitutional amendment, as in prohibition of alcohol. That required a lot of social demand for that. The mining thing seems like fewer people care about it. I mean, environmentalists care about it. But it's not something where you have like rallies in the street about it. Um, So I would be shocked if we got something at the federal level. At the states, I could totally see state-level bans in the more progressive states. I could imagine that. There's not a ton of mining in those states anyway. What would happen, let's say, just for the sake of argument, the U.S. banned mining in this country entirely, it would make Bitcoin's emissions footprint worse. Of course. Because... The U.S. is a relatively clean grid. We have tons of wind and solar and more coming on all the time. The miners are really aggressively moving to scoop that up, especially if it can't reach demand centers, because that's a problem that we have with our grid is there's not enough transmission, so the energy doesn't necessarily always make it to the consumer. Um, And so mining would go to the other places where mining occurs, and we know where it happens. Kazakhstan, Russia... Iran, Venezuela are those places where you want to send billions and billions of dollars of revenue
1: they're pretty progressive nations with pretty progressive energy policies on there
0: right, so <laughs> the mining that occurs in these places is not clean no Kazakhstan is with coal Russia you know i don 't think they would be it would be particularly clean there's some hydro there Venezuela there's a fair amount of mining because um, there is subsidized electricity, so the Venezuelan. Individual citizens bought a bunch of asics, and then the Venezuelan regime stole confiscated them. them. They yeah. stole them, and now the Venezuelan effectively secret police are doing the mining. Do we want them to benefit from our ban of Bitcoin domestically? I I don't think that would be wise. That's because you've gamed it out, right? But, so it's about the second order thinking. Yeah, politicians they live on the first order.
1: Well, so do these fuckheads like the freeze? Uh, privileged people living in comfortable, uh, nice Western lives who tend to not really spend much time thinking about perhaps things like Alex Gladstein thinks with Bitcoin. They don't think about the benefits that Bitcoin brings to multiple areas, not just the energy sector, but also in terms of human rights and activists. They don't think that. They right. sit with their fucking Starbucks and they want to ban something, which we know uh, definitely it makes has a massive impact on people's lives
0: yeah, I mean, I would compare it to gold. So like gold mining objectively consumes more energy, and it's much dirtier than Bitcoin. Bitcoin is fully electrified, right? Mm-hmm. Gold mining requires trucks that have diesel and you know enormous industrial machinery to sift through rock and stuff like that. It's you can't electrify it. It could never be made sustainable. Gold doesn't get the flack Bitcoin does as much. I, I don't know. I don't see a lot of people grousing about gold's energy consumption. Maybe it happens. Because gold is embedded culturally in a lot of different countries, right? Less so in the U.S., but... um, Well, also
1: the central banks hold...
0: They hold gold, yeah. And um, it's still, even though a lot of people think it's this like archaic relic or whatever, gold's actually pretty useful, you know. And, um, you know, a lot of individual people in India and China hold gold as a household, you know, savings device. So it is a little weird. I think it's the newness of Bitcoin and the fact that it's not really that distributed globally. I mean, maybe 100, 150 million people have touched Bitcoin. Um, And so that's really the main problem, I would say. like, Independent of all this discussion of energy, it's that it's new and people don't see the utility.
1: And I also think there are people who heard about it early on did not invest, and they're very bitter when they hear about some 26-year-old becoming worth tens of millions and they didn't do it. I think there's... Uh, who was it? Was it Craig Warmke?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We interviewed this guy, Craig Warmke, Ooh. his philosopher. He wrote this paper. Um, and what was that index they produced?
0: Oh, the, like, he, salty index. Yeah, it's the
1: salty index. Yeah, yeah. And he measured when uh, journalists discovered Bitcoin and then how, uh, over time, how much more salty their articles against Bitcoin became. <laughs> and he, he kind of... Yeah, his uh, thesis was that uh, these people discovered Bitcoin early on, had every opportunity to invest in it, become supremely rich, and they didn't, and they're just very bitter. I think Nathaniel Popper is a great example of that. I actually liked his book. It was the first thing I read on Bitcoin, I thought it was brilliant, and now I just see him as a bit of a dick who attacks the industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin has gone sideways for five years, give or take now, so maybe there'll be less of that going forward. But you know, the the main issue I find is People ideologically object to the idea of non-state money, right? Because they think we're opting out of the social contract, right? If you're holding dollars and treasury bills, you're kind of like funding. Here's like, the saltiness index. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the salt shaker. I never
1: noticed on. the salt shaker the first time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's fucking brilliant. Yeah, Craig is great. Yeah, I'm. I'm very glad that you're having more philosophers on the show. That's some
1: of my favorite shows to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that first show I did with, with Troy, I just sat there with a big grin. Uh, even with Craig, and look, look, not everyone loved the Craig show, um, and I think Craig needs more time like doing these because it you know it takes some learning. But I loved it. I just sat there, just listening, trying to trying to well not trying to watching people, you know, just run through like ideas and you know question everything. Is just I find it fascinating.
0: Craig wrote one of the best papers on Bitcoin, which, which is one? I think it's called Electronic Coins. Huh. It's about, um, I mean, it's from a philosophical perspective. It's about what is a Bitcoin? Like, what is the ontology of Bitcoin? Just just that one me. Like. We've got Andrew Bailey tomorrow, too. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I mean, philosophy nerds like me, I'm very glad that there's like a whole cohort of these guys. Well, so, yeah, we, we've
1: got more philosophers coming in. We've got more progressives coming in. Uh, the the diversity coming into Bitcoin, I think, is super interesting. We, need, we do need more women. Yeah, And we do need more people from minority groups. We don't... Yeah, I, th- I think I'm really going to piss somebody off and put a few people off now. I'm going to say, we don't just want it to be middle-class white people. Like, we want to be fully represented, and uh, you know, we're going to make our effort. We've, we've always made the effort to try and have a diverse group of opinions, but I think it's now starting to happen. You know, we've, jumped, we've jumped away from just being libertarians and, and conservatives, which is a good thing.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's been a concerted effort in the Bitcoin community to narrow the tent, to make it into a very small tent and uh, tie it to, like, right-wing ideology and stuff like that. But that's not how you win.
1: No, I I completely agree. That's why when Pierre Rochard today was uh, criticizing progressives, I think he missed the point that uh, the conservatives and libertarians have had. They've been in Bitcoin for years. There hasn't really been a progressive movement. We've actively tried to help uh, construct one, and any progressive who wants to come on the show, we've invited them on. and, And what's happened is, like, communities built. Margot, Troy, Mark Goodwin, Logan Bollinger. Uh, they've all kind of grouped together and they're working together, and I think that's a good thing. You know, you want, you don't want when when Elizabeth Warren is criticizing Bitcoin or AOC, the squad, isn't it the squad? The squad, yeah. The squad. You don't want conservatives telling them why they're wrong because they're not going to listen. What you want is a group of progressives coming and saying, "Look, this is why you're wrong," because they're more likely to listen. So, if we want Bitcoin to win, we have to touch every community and every subculture. So, no, I think it's a good thing, and I, th- I think Pierre Mr. Mart, there.
0: And I, I would, just on that, I would say, I think the most politically impactful people in Bitcoin going forward will not be the people from the orthodox, uh, quote-unquote, pure group.
1: No, uh, no, I, I agree with that. Um, I think also, sometimes it's hard to have, I think the longer you do this, the harder it is to have the empathy for people who don't understand this. Because you've been embedded in it for, I don't know how long you are, I mean, I've been embedded deeply for five or six years, and aware of Bitcoin for eight. Sometimes you forget, you know, how much information you've consumed, how many things you've figured out, how many Nick Carter articles you've read, or podcasts you've listened to, and how down the rabbit hole you are. You can go home, I can go home, and I mix in, most of my circles outside of this are not Bitcoiners. The only thing I know about Bitcoin is that it's my job. and. Suddenly, you know, you even even approaching the basics of understanding of the nature of money is very difficult. And I think the longer you've been in, the less empathy you have for these people. So you can get sucked into shouting now oh, have some fun staying poor, which we've all done. But actually sometimes people just need to be sat down and given a bit of time. And so I think a new wave of people coming in right now is going to be very good for the next few years of Bitcoin.
0: I'm um, yeah, I'm very excited about the new breed. The new breed. Um of which, uh, by the
1: way, Dylan Leclerc wrote something very interesting today. I'm going to have to dig out. Yeah, have a look. Um, okay, sorry, we're, we're going around in circles here. Um, going back to the positive points of the report, uh, obviously he raises the idea that Bitcoin miners can support the grid, and that is um, that's a super interesting point because that is something that can support every single state. Yes, grid stability is super important. Sometimes I wonder how much do we overstate things as a group of bitcoins because it feels like a positive for Bitcoin so do we overstate it you will know better than me like how how credible are claims that Bitcoin mining can make a grid stronger and how much did they touch on that in the report
0: yeah they they mentioned it, um, it they didn't give it a long treatment I mean I'm one of the main kind of proponents of this claim so I'm partially responsible for. The, the sort of now widespread view within Bitcoin that uh, miners can play this grid stabilization role. It's a complex topic. Demand response is not that well understood even in the energy sector. And, you know, trying to explain it to a layperson is, is also challenging. So it also very much depends on the ISO or RTO. So basically the subunit there's not just one grid in america there's a whole bunch of geographic regions and they all have different policies and also different jargon different nomenclature the one that i spend a lot of time on is texas because it's very special and unique and it's islanded which means it's not really connected to the rest of the american grid and it also has a lot of renewables like the texas grid has Probably more renewables overall than maybe any other major one, aside from possibly California.
1: Kind of ironic, really.
0: Well, it's just blessed with wind and solar. Yeah, so you might say, well, Texas is this ruby red state. Why do they have so many renewables? Well, there's big federal credits for building wind and solar, and it happens to be the best place in North America to have both wind and solar. So if you think about the map of where wind... Where it's windy in America, it's mostly west. It's mostly sort of west of the Mississippi. Um, And if you think about where it's sunny, it's the southwest. So West Texas is very abundant in terms of wind and energy, wind and solar. So you got tons and tons of wind and solar built there. They also built out this big transmission line called CREZ, which basically all this renewable generation popped up along the line. It's like when, back in the old days, you'd build a railroad and people would build cities next to the railroad. It's like that. And so they have some uh, enormous percentage of their grid, which is wind and solar. And so a lot of... And that meant that there are negative prices a lot, uh, because... or zero prices, because they couldn't really get all of that generation to the parts of Texas where people are consuming energy, Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, Austin, more in the sort of uh, southeast part of the state. And um, so you do have, um, and when you have, when you have wind and solar, they're, they're sort of more intimate, right? You're dependent on the weather. And so it is useful to have um, industrial, like industrial um, consumers of energy being able to dial down that, you know, their energy at a moment's notice. And Bitcoin miners are very suited for this, more so than I would say any other industrial consumer, because they're fully interruptible. They can interrupt their whole process at a moment's notice without really suffering any significant losses, aside from just the opportunity cost. They can dial down their their entire consumption, not just partial. If you think about an aluminum plant, they can dial down a portion of their generation, but it takes time, they need notice, and it takes time to get it back online, too. Um, and uh, you know, if you think about other industrial consumers of energy, think about a hospital, they can't dial down their consumption, people would die. An office building, they can't just turn off the AC, people would complain, right? So, um, Bitcoin miners are very good at this. The report kind of dismisses it, though, because they say the Bitcoin miners are the ones responsible for higher load anyway. And so by modulating their load when there's a grid scarcity, they're not being that helpful because they, are, they accuse Bitcoin miners of sort of causing the grid scarcity in the first place. So they are very dismissive of this grid stabilization. I would say Bitcoin miners, they are able to produce kind of unique And uh, Sean Connell would be the guy who I think is the the best at this. Uh, I'm certainly not an expert on energy. They're able to sort of uniquely um, create these products, like in Texas, they call them like ancillary services, um, where they can be highly configurable and the grid operator can almost like take control of the miner and their energy consumption and modulate it in real time to meet the grid objectives. Uh, But you're right, I mean, we can't overstate it. Um, I would say it's useful, and um, I hope that miners provide more clarity around the extent to which they're doing this. They also get compensated for it. So when miners are voluntarily, you know, curtailing their usage, uh, they opt into these sort of programs, and, you know, the grid operator says, hey, I need you to turn off your equipment for two hours. They do get paid for that. So it's like they're selling insurance to the grid. And that's another thing that people complain about. It's like, how dare they get paid when there's a grid scarcity event? Well, it's because it makes sense economically to pay them to turn off so that everybody else can benefit. So these are formal programs. They are set up by the grid operators themselves. Miners are very good at taking advantage of them. They're very suited to do that. That's a good feature. We need more flexibility in the grid as we have more wind and solar, for sure.
1: I'm assuming the r- report didn't do this, but d- are you aware of any actual feedback directly from the grid and what they think about miners? Are they like, uh, these is, this is amazing for us, this this changes the game for us, this
0: does help us? The Texas grid, where I'd say this is the most advanced, Yeah, they're very aware of mining. They have... Uh, Brad Jones, who's the former CEO, I think, of ERCOT, yeah, has true. said favorable things about it, and in particular the grid stabilization. All of that said, now they're feeling a little overwhelmed by the number of miners that came in and asked for to be grid connected. And so there's also a degree of trepidation where they are worried about, you know, they got something like 30 gigawatts worth of requests. Some of them are very speculative, not serious requests. But some of them are real, and so now they're wondering how they're going to support all of this.
1: Are there any other grids looking at this at all, any other grids which are working with miners, or is it just ERCOT?
0: For a long time, the grids weren't really aware of them. I think now they are learning from Texas. And so you will see more direct engagement between miners and the grid operators, and maybe they will be designing more of these demand response programs But yeah, my understanding is in the US, the Texas grid is sort of the most engaged.
1: Is there a possibility that this becomes too successful in the US and leads to too much hash rate being within the US and presents a different
0: type of risk? So there's maybe 30 to 40% of Bitcoin hash rate in the US.
1: That feels like that's grown very quickly,
0: yeah, I mean, you know, the China ban really accelerated it. but um, hash rate section, I mean, hash rate is technically wrong. energy consumption is not growing right now. okay. It's actually declining. So it peaked at around fifteen gigawatts, give or take. and now it's around ten gigawatts. okay. So this is another thing that people will get wrong. The hash price, which is like um, you know a dollar weighted price of what um, a unit of hash rate is worth it's gone down. So miners, they are actually less incentivized to like, you know, buy a power plant or something. They're less economically able to do that because their margins have been really challenged. So miners aren't the menace to the grids that people think they are just because their economics have changed because hash rate has come up and the price of Bitcoin has come down. So right now it's, you know miners are not like outbidding other consumers, right? Miners are less willing to pay up for energy because hash rates come up, price of Bitcoins come down. If the price of Bitcoin goes to a million overnight, yes, miners are gonna start like buying power plants and outbidding everybody for energy and then they will be a grid menace. But right now it's the opposite. They're becoming more benign when it comes to the grid.
1: We've had a lot of conversations on the show about mining and energy, Uh, probably a bit skewed more towards the energy side of things. And there are a lot of discussions within Bitcoin with regards to this. I think we're all, as Bitcoiners, are united in the idea that uh, uh, Bitcoin and mining is good for the grids and can support things such as uh, um, grid stabilization. Uh, But there is a clash around the energy mix and specifically with regards to uh, perhaps uh, climate, uh, change goals. Uh, so that means there's been a clash with regards to renewables. There's been a clash with regards to, uh, the e-waste from renewables, whether renewables have actually weakened the grids. Uh, and when you dig into it, often you can find both ends of the spectrum misleading information or skewed information. I'll just give you one example. There was, um, a thing that, uh, I think it's Epstein's book. He talks about, uh, birds that are killed by turbines, which is obviously terrible and, you know, nobody wants that. But, um, when you actually do the research on how many birds die, it's a very small amount compared to the ones that just fly into windows or into cars or into buildings. But there is this skew of information. From you, from your perspective, what what do you see the role of renewables uh, within the energy mix? And what's your kind of perspective on all of it?
0: I mean... To be very clear, I think climate change is real. Like, I was called uh, a climate denier by one of the authors of the report. Okay. (laughs) Which is pretty funny. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, I I think that's unambiguous
0: now. I think we have to do something about it. I think what happens in China and India matters a lot more than what we do in America, actually. If you look at the emissions of of the West, Europe, and America, they're falling. We're actually doing a pretty good job overall. What really matters is actually what China does. They're building, like, 50 coal-powered power plants right now, more than the rest of the world combined. Right. So, like, the fate of the, you know, of the planet is really a function of what the number one emissions uh, emitting country is doing, which is China. And then it also matters about the emerging middle class in India and maybe Africa and Southeast Asia. It matters whether they're able to decarbonize. Um, and that kind of gets lost in the debate a bit, is, like, Europe on the margin is not going to, change things and and the US um, maybe a little bit but uh, basically our emissions profile is coming down. But renewables are definitely key into the transition but you can also overdo it and then score own goals basically so that's what happened you know the demand for coal has like totally surged in Europe recently uh, they did lean it heavily into renewables and um, you know arguably, at least in the short term, it hasn't been a huge success. Do you,
1: do you blame renewables for that, or a reliance on uh, an over reliance on energy from Russia? Because that seems to be yeah. the primary issue. Because the transition to green energy has been pretty good in Europe. There were specific. I think Iceland is entirely renewable now. I think uh, is it Denmark? Um, Denmark's been so successful; they're actually exporting re- uh, energy, renewable energy, to other parts of Europe. It feels like the transition was fairly successful. But the main issue, there wasn't uh, kind of a plan B for energy sovereignty in a scenario where we are now, which, you know, credit to him, I think Donald Trump pointed out to Germany.
0: uh, He did. I mean, you have to do it in a realistic way. So I would argue their transition was unrealistic because the premise was cheap Russian gas will feed our industrial sector. And so the Germans turning off nuclear, you know, the Greens, totally anti-nuclear in Germany... That's, and Belgium just turned off a nuclear plant. That is the kind of stuff that's unforgivable in my view, because yes, it's all well and good to build a lot of wind turbines and solar and stuff like that, even if, you know, let's say Germany's not very good for wind or solar, but you have to do it in a realistic way. You have to have insurance, you have to have backup. And now they're going to take a step back. The emissions intensity of Europe is going to go up. So, and in this country, I think there have been enormous federal subsidies for wind and solar. And I think it is possible to overdo it because at a certain, you know, the model of the grid generation is changing where you have more intermittency, more weather reliance, as opposed to conventional generation, which is just very predictable. And you might run into, you will run into trouble if you have too much intermittent generation without enough batteries, for instance. And the, it's sort of an open question as to whether we have enough even raw materials to build all those batteries. Yeah. And there's an open question, is is our supply chain now way too dependent on China? So have we now surrendered our energy sovereignty? Initially it was we were dependent on the Middle East for oil and things like that. Now let's say we go super renewable, or now we just dependent on China. Right. So I mean... I think you do have to decarbonize. That's actually the main thing that helped us decarbonize in the U.S. over the last decade was natural gas, replacing coal generation with natural gas. Um, And that's been a big success.
1: This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I am now using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. Now, with the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically, so you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. I remember when I used to use the previous Wasabi; you know, it's a little bit tricky trying to understand how to do a coin join. All that's taken away. It's all done automatically for you. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you never leak your IP address. There's also no minimum denomination, so any amount you receive from CoinJoin is totally private. Now, privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently, and with Wasabi 2.0, this makes it so easy. So if you want to find out more, please do go and check out wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Next up is my new sponsor, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. And now this is a two-day event of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two with top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners, what more can you ask for? And I'm not just promoting it here on my podcast. I'm going to be heading to the event in Austin. I'm going to be in Vegas with Danny, but I'm going to be catching a flight over to Austin to see my Texas Bitcoin buddies and interviewing a very important person on stage. So make sure you book your ticket and check out this event. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to hang out. Right. If you want to find out more, please head over to TexasBlockchainSummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you there. This offer is valid until the end of October, and I hope to see you all down in Austin, Texas. Next up, it is Gemini, who are also the lead sponsor of my football club, Rail Bedford. Now, I am exclusively using Gemini for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I am only buying... It is a time to buy for me. We're hodlers, right? We're hodling through this. Now, I've been using the Gemini app for buying the dips. They have crushed it with the UX, and with that, I set up my DCA for twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Now, both the app and the website make it really easy for buying and selling Bitcoin, and Gemini has invested in building industry leading security from day one. And they are running a special offer for listeners of my podcast, What Bitcoin Did, all you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Also, we have a BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had finding a payment service provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in UK and Europe, and they are now expanding globally. And they have this incredible network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now, listen, I know, like me, a whole bunch of you had trouble with finding banking service providers. So if you're looking for a bank who understands and supports Bitcoin companies, rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you're going to want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash peter, which is b c dot forward slash peter. Going back to the report, um, let's talk about where it was particularly weak.
0: I mean, my main issue, and I, I heard that they were surprised that I dug into the footnotes, which is like, how can you... I expect that I wouldn't read the footnotes. Mm-hmm. Um, my main issue is their reliance on sources which are not academic sources. So they cite DeVries something like 26 times in the okay. report. This guy is an anti Bitcoin activist. He's not an academic. He sometimes publishes stuff in journals, but he publishes in the sort of commentary section, which is not peer reviewed. So it's like publishing a blog post and then just getting it hosted on the journals page. It's a classic tactic that he uses and people like him to get press coverage so that the press thinks it's academic, but it's not, right? Do we know his incentives? Well, he I believe still literally works for the Dutch Central Bank, but I don't think, you huh. know, they're like paying him to like fud Bitcoin or anything. I think the guy just d- hates Bitcoin. And so it's it's like, uh, you know, any of us, like, we support Bitcoin. And so we do things outside of an economic incentive, right? We just have an ideological incentive. I think it's the same for this guy. Um, he's clearly not interested in the truth because he never arrives at the truth, right?
1: Can you look up some of his stuff? Mm-hmm. Let's see what... Does he does. He have his own blog? It's Digiconomist. Economist. And is it is it an anti-Bitcoin blog or is it... Well,
0: I mean, effectively, yes. Bitcoin sustainability. So, uh,
1: what does he write about Ethereum sustainability? He
0: was pretty. He was pretty negative on Ethereum, too, at least until the merge, which is now, you know. tip. Yeah, so he used to be called the Dogeconomist, and he was a Dogecoin blogger. <laughs> and then he re- rebranded uh, it as Digicon. So he
1: got wrecked on Dogecoin rather than buying Bitcoin.
0: So um, this, this uh, 72 megaton estimate is just not true. Like, if you compare it to the recent Cambridge report... Cambridge is much more rigorous. Okay, they, okay, you know, much more skilled.
1: So, we just explain to people listening. We're on the Digitonomics So, if you're not on the YouTube, uh, we're on his website. There's the annualized total Bitcoin footprint. He's got the carbon footprint of seventy-two point seven two. What is MT? Megatons. Megatons of CO two, comparable to the carbon footprint of Turkmenistan. Okay, so.
0: All three of these are wrong, by the way. So how far wrong is that carbon footprint? So go to the uh, Cambridge, go mm-hmm. to the CBECI.org. So Cambridge just came out with an estimate, which is better. I think their estimate is like half of that from the carbon footprint. Is um, the carbon footprint increasing? Uh, it's decreasing right now because Bitcoin's hash rate. So Cambridge just came out with, um, yeah, go to the greenhouse gas index on the left there. And their estimate is uh, 53 megatons. So it's much less. So it's, it's like about
1: 40, 45% wrong.
0: And keep in mind, this is actually a conservative estimate from Cambridge because they don't know directly what the miners are doing exactly. Is that chart?
1: Okay, that's the chart below, Danny. Can you just click on that? Is that all? T- yeah, so, so it's kind of, it is kind of trending up.
0: Um, uh, well, right now, like Bitcoin's energy consumption is basically going down because like miners are going out of business. and the, Of course, because of Bitcoin the bear is market. Low.
1: But like cycle wise, it's kind of trending. I don't know, actually. Look. Well,
0: yeah. keep, keep in mind, this is riven with its own data problems. They are yeah. the reason it's so volatile is because the miners left China and then there was the seasonal variation in China. So it went from hydro to coal to hydro. Yeah. Um, I would say this should also be caveated heavily because they don't have the direct data from the Bitcoin miners, Okay. but this is still a much more rigorous estimate than DeVries.
1: Yeah. I mean, if this was the source, you would you I would, trust would say more.
0: this is like a reasonable estimate. DeVries comes in way high, but DeVries, his estimate is what gets cited in this report. Now granted, this Cambridge index didn't exist at the time that the report was right, okay. written, but it just goes to show, like the US government is citing bad data the better data that we have shows that DeVries is way off. Danny, you can go back to DigiConomist. Yeah. And, and also I would note, like, you know, Cambridge is citing a lower estimate for just energy consumption too. Much so it's lo- so
1: 130 terawatts with
0: you Go to the CBI uh, index. Um Hundred and five terawatt hours. So you see, That's it's
1: closer. And then the e-waste. What's that? Forty point seven. So
0: Cambridge doesn't have an estimate for e-waste. This number is a f- is a fiction. This fo- It's completely made up. And I, I can explain in detail why. <laughs> so he did this paper where he says all Bitcoin ASICs, all the hardware gets trashed every 1.3 years. Okay, so we know it's at least five years. Yeah, yeah. So where does he get this number from? He gets it from uh, a law called Kumi's Law, which is a number about uh, the efficiency of computers growing over time. It's not a Bitcoin-specific observation. It's just a very general observation around computing. He misapplies it to Bitcoin. He just assumes... The Bitcoin miners throw out their machines every 1.3 years. Completely false. Yeah. Completely false. It's more like five years, and that you know what they don't really throw out the machines. They either get them refurbished or they recycle them. Machines yeah. are mostly made of aluminum.
1: Uh, I mean, I sold all my S9s about what was it about eighteen months ago.
0: Yeah, there's that- typically a willing buyer right? It's just, so you just sell it on to someone else that maybe has cheaper access to electricity. They don't, like, we know from looking at the blockchain um, there's ways to estimate it. You know that S9s were active in 2021, right? That's six years after they first came out. Yeah. So his estimate of waste assumes, the whole thing relies on this assumption that the whole fleet of ASICs is junked every 1.3 years, which is just completely incompatible with reality.
1: Well, yeah. So this is what Uh, shows to me that he's an idiot because anybody who does single Bitcoin transaction footprints, which we know, I know right now without even looking into it, He's doing it on single baseline transactions. Yeah, trained, uh, I mean, th-
0: these numbers are basically even more fictitious than the numbers above that he's basing these estimates on.
1: But his, not only are his numbers fix, fictitious, but they, they don't actually take into account Lightning Network, like all the things we know about. Right, all the things we know. Like anybody, uh, anybody who talks about the. Um, energy usage or the the number of transactions per second based on base chain, I already know they're an idiot. They, yeah. haven't, they haven't done the basic I mean, research. The, but he, I guarantee he's been told this
0: and well, ignored it. So the guy, he actually came, he's the guy that's responsible for this per transaction energy estimate. He right. pioneered this horrible um, data point. Um, he's not, you know, he, so it's not that he's ignorant, he's malicious, right? Yes. It's, it, You know, you should sort of, what's the law? It's like always assume... Ignorance rather than malice, not the case here. Yeah, we know that he knows better because he's been told many times, but he chooses to ignore. So it. he, yeah. So for instance, a Bitcoin transaction can contain many thousands of outputs, right? He doesn't take that into account, of course. Yeah, of course. Uh, Bitcoin transactions are not really associated with energy anyway. The energy consumed by Bitcoin is more due to the issuance. It's not about the transactions, right? So the the metric doesn't even make sense. The e waste part is a completely preposterous and it's two ways. The first estimate is wrong, and also Bitcoin transactions don't cause e-waste to occur. Like a <laughs> an ASIC doesn't depreciate because it made a transaction, right? It's not like the ASIC processes a transaction, then like parts of it fall off. You know, like it's just like a completely insane thing to posit.
1: And also, you are using Bitcoin by not spending it. Sometimes, like a great example would be. Yeah. Um, Again, I've brought them up a few times recently because I met Sam Abassi, but uh, Hoseki, right? Uh, Hoseki, uh, do you know Hoseki? We're investors. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, we had Sam on the show. That's great. great. He he um, He came. He also came to Bedford. Um, but they're obviously solving, a, if anyone doesn't know them, they're solving the problem whereby if you've got Bitcoin collateral and maybe you want to buy a house and you want to use that as proof of uh, that you've you know, proof of your financial position, you don't have to actually send them the, the X-Pub or the Z-Pub. You can just... Um, prove it, but that's actually a usage.
0: So you're yeah, using it while
1: not, while not creating a transaction. So it's much more nuanced that people like this fucking idiot uh, don't consider.
0: Um, and, you know, like, I don't want to unnecessarily dump on DeVries, but the, the reason that it's important that we explain why he's totally wrong on this is because the U.S. government is citing him as an authority, which is bananas.
1: Yeah, and that makes me wonder again what their intentions were. Did they Know that did they write the conclusion before they wrote the report, which I suspect probably is something that happens.
0: So yeah, I'm mixed on the ignorance versus malice thing for them. I think they may have just been lazy, and they're like, yeah, we'll pick the first you know few results on Google Scholar and uh, and go for that. Yeah, Digiconomist is not a reliable source. It's not something I would expect to see in an academic, serious academic publication. So I think it's embarrassing. But does the U.S. government ever produce serious
1: academic publications, or is this consistent with everything they do?
0: I mean, this is the Office of Science and Technology Policy. It's like basically the mouthpiece of the White House. Of course. You would expect them to have a high standard of rigor.
1: You would hope, but historically, any government department, doesn't matter whether it's in the U.K. or here, tends to, uh, I I think, it recruits uh, a lower standard of employee.
0: Sure, yeah. I mean, I don't really know who wrote it. I mean, all, all I'll say is if I was, you know, if I was a college professor and I had assigned this paper and it was a student turned it in to me, I would fail them because it's not academic, right? <laughs> it's like they're relying on, on... not. It's not like, oh, you're relying on Wikipedia. They're relying on sources that aren't good enough for Wikipedia. If you check the Bitcoin Wikipedia page, Economist was proposed as a citation and it didn't get in and it didn't meet Wikipedia's own standards. Which are pretty low. Right. It's a low bar. <laughs> right. <laughs> good enough for the US government, not good enough for Wikipedia
1: yeah okay, uh, can you talk to me about the more et al paper and you say that's cited?
0: Yeah, so um, this friend. is this is another just shocker. I, it's like I think in my in my blog I said something it's like you're reading an official report on like space exploration and there's a link to like a conspiracy website that says the moon landing was faked. This is on that level of crazy. So it's insane to me that the US government cited more et al and they'll probably, you know, if they were to listen to this and respond, they would say something like, Oh, well, it was just a stray citation. It wasn't the cornerstone of the report. Doesn't matter. It's discrediting. Don't cite crazy conspiracy nonsense. Okay. The, I think there'll be loads of people listening that don't know what Mora yeah. is. Can you explain what that report was? Oh, you're telling me not everyone knows more at all 2018. <laughs> it, well, it's like one of the most vexatious papers that's ever been written about uh, Bitcoin's energy consumption. Basically, the title is something like, Bitcoin's going to cause uh, the world's climate to warm by two degrees Celsius. Obviously, false. Um, it was a paper written by undergraduates at the University of Hawaii as a part of a class um, exercise in how to get a paper published. The guy Mora, Camilo Mora, was the professor. He didn't write any of the paper. His students wrote it. What age students? Undergraduate. So I don't know what age. Is that early, like 18 early, to 20? Yeah, 18 to 21. Okay. The paper itself is crazy. So very briefly, it um, says that there's a um, energy... Um, they they follow the same economist model of energy transactions. Transactions have a payload of energy, which is not how it works. And then they say they expect... Bitcoin will follow an adoption curve whereby there's hundreds of billions of transactions per year, which is really not possible for Bitcoin, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so they combine those two premises and they say, well, these hundreds of billions of transactions are going to carry all these kilowatt hours of energy. And so it's going to consume X amount of energy and that's going to cause all these emissions and that's going to warm the earth by two degrees. So it's very bad math. The model isn't a model resembling Bitcoin. It's like you know, it's like someone is creating a model of a house and it's, they're actually describing a cow. It's just <laughs> like, there's no resemblance between the model <laughs> they posit of Bitcoin and Bitcoin. And so they get this crazy, implausible result, but the U.S. government cites it. And it's just so irresponsible. And it, it's an immediate sign to me that they didn't do their homework, that they didn't read the paper that they're citing, and just that they have super low standards. So I I find it very vexatious because that more at all, that doesn't get cited by most academics that are writing about this. They know that it's a crazy paper. If you go to the paper website on nature.com, you'll see there's three rebuttals on the front page right there published in the same journal. So the journal even admits, hey guys, like you should probably read these three rebuttals, Like the paper's not sound. But they didn't, go to the, like, they didn't bother probably going to the actual, like, paper page on nature.com. Can't believe we didn't ask me about that. I mean, he, yeah, he, th- he had the first-hand experience with that.
1: Yeah. Um, okay, anything else before we start talking about their recommendations? Anything else that was particularly...
0: Well, one of the things that really bothered me was, as I said, they admit that Bitcoin miners are helping grid flexibility and grid stabilization, but they immediately write it off by saying, well, Bitcoin miners are causing this extra demand. But what they don't understand is having demand for power is good, right? We, that means there's an economic subsidy to build new power. We know that Bitcoin miners are causing the construction of new power. They are helping with the economics of renewables, such that renewables that might not be economical now are economical, right? So that's causing there to be more renewable power in existence than otherwise. We know there's Bitcoin miners that have their specific mandate, which is to um, induce the construction of new renewables. Specifically, Aspen Creek, I'm an investor, but um, this is their specific model. They only operate if they can add power to the grid, clean power. So this is a Bitcoin miner that's specifically causing new power to be added to the grid. So the U.S. government is operating under this zero-sum assumption where there's no new supply contributed by Bitcoin. But that's a false assumption. The existence of Bitcoin is this buyer of all these pockets of energy that might be stranded, or buyers of wind and solar energy that's not being monetized. That means there's more energy overall. So they're causing more supply to come into existence. They don't acknowledge that. That's a huge oversight in my mind. The other thing that really bothered me was they have this can't-win approach, basically. So they say, well, you know, it doesn't matter that Bitcoin miners are using renewables because all that means is that other users of renewables, now they're just pushed out of that power and they're just going to use coal or natural gas. So they call that leakage, which is a horrible term. Um, And so basically, they're dismissing the fact that Bitcoin miners are making a concerted effort to locate with next to renewables and use those renewables because they're basically saying, well, in our kind of zero-sum scarcity mindset world, uh, there's only a fixed amount of renewables, so it doesn't matter that you're consuming renewables. Um, And so they basically lay out an extremely narrow set of conditions under which Bitcoin miners could sort of like validly consume energy, which is just not, it's like a crazy impossible standard to meet. And it's not a standard that I see any other industry being subjected to. So, um, you know, the US government doesn't like go to you know, some manufacturing industry and say, hey guys, you have to use renewables, but you have to be additive with renewables and you need to make sure that you're not um, using up scarce renewable power that someone else might be using. It's like, that doesn't happen. So they're just laying out this crazy impossible standard, which is why I say it's a can't win approach. Because even when miners are doing everything they can to be as clean and as sustainable as possible, the U.S. government doesn't give them any credit for that. And so that was to me the most irritating part of the report.
1: What, in terms of the recommendations, did they make? And is any part of that, did you think, okay, that's productive, or is it all complete junk?
0: Well, kind of vague. So, one thing they said was they wanted more transparency from miners, which I completely agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been sort of involved in the Bitcoin mining council. By the way, they didn't cite it at all, which is fine, I guess. I mean, if you don't, if you think it's an industry group, so you don't believe the data, but they're citing, um, you know, um, anti-industry Yeah, there's they're exactly they're citing like anti-proof of work lobbyists. Like we didn't touch on it, but there's these academics that have this uh, crypto carbon rating uh, institute, and they are funded by proof of stake protocols to create ESG reports for these proof of stake protocols. So obviously, they have an anti-proof of work bias. So the U.S. government is citing them. They're not citing any pro-Bitcoin industry groups. So it's completely unbalanced. Um, I forgot, what was the question? What what
1: recommendations did they make, uh, both positive and ridiculous?
0: Oh yeah, so they do ask for more transparency, which I agree with. Yeah, I agree. We're on that. the same page. I think Bitcoin miners, especially publicly traded ones, if you're a publicly traded company, by law you have to be transparent. It's just that the securities disclosures you make don't pertain that much to your energy consumption. So I think miners should just be proactive and do it, basically because right now they're not getting the message out about what kind of power they're using. The other recommendations were basically like, Congress should think about banning this, which would be very counterproductive. As I said, it would just mean that miners elsewhere would be empowered, and um, overall Bitcoin's emissions footprint would go up. So that I obviously disagree with.
1: If there was a recommendation to ban it and it went to Congress, um, my assumption is it's got more of a chance under a Uh, Biden administration than, say, a Republican administration? Because there'd be enough Republicans within states like Texas to block this?
0: Yeah, I mean, the the midterms are coming up and the... uh, Republicans are almost certainly going to win the House, and they might win the Senate. So this legislation wouldn't likely pass under those conditions. Just for a
1: tourist, can you explain the midterms and what that actually means?
0: Well, just Congress is turning over, so a lot of seats in Congress are up for election. Right now, um, it's fully blue. So the Senate is Democratic-controlled, albeit with a slim margin. The House is democratic control, and the presidency, obviously, is a Democrat. So that's why they've been able to kind of pass legislation that they want. In a few months' time, it'll likely be divided. So the presidency will still be a Democrat, but Congress, at least one House of Congress, and they have to pass both houses for a bill to pass, will be Republican. So they won't be able to pass anything that's super-sweeping, hyper-progressive. And and enough Democrats, or enough Republicans are pro-crypto that I think we would basically be safe at that point.
1: Yeah, so that goes back to the point that we need progressives to realize that Bitcoin is actually a progressive idea.
0: There are. Like Ro Khanna, for instance, yep. is, is a, one really good example. Super-progressive out in California, but he's pro-Bitcoin as well.
1: And uh, Gillibrand's closer...
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's others like Darren Soto, Um, there's plenty of uh, democratic allies that are working with like Cynthia Lummis and stuff on pro-crypto stuff, which is really interesting.
1: Um, What can Bitcoiners do to respond to this, to help, support?
0: So, I think, you know, I'm I'm not going to sit here and claim that all Bitcoin miners are like perfectly sustainable. They're not. In fact, some of them are really not, like some of them have committed PR own goals, like for instance, Marathon using the Hardin power plant up in Montana—it's a coal plant. If you look at the like two thousand, you know, most polluting, <laughs> um, you know, generation plants in North America, the Hardin plant is like seventeenth on the list of highest emissions per unit of energy created. So it's crazy that they basically activated that to mine Bitcoin with.
1: Marathon always seems to do stupid shit.
0: I just, you know, I think if you are a visible, large, public Bitcoin miner, activating a coal plant that's super dirty is a crazy thing to do, you know? It's probably going to hurt you in the long run, even if the power is cheap. Right. So Bitcoin miners, I think, should continue pushing to be sustainable. They should be transparent about what they're doing. A lot of them are doing impressive work in terms of identifying chain of renewables, in terms of opting into these demand response programs in terms of actually inducing the construction of new renewables. They should talk about that.
1: What's going on with the Bitcoin Mining Council? Because it kind of kind of hit with a bang. There's a lot of work being done, some good Twitter spaces. I feel like I haven't heard from them much. Is it quieting down, or is it just, I've just not noticed it?
0: So they do quarterly disclosures. Okay. And um, according to them, the numbers are fairly good. However, I found it to be a little black boxy. So they right. just haven't been really, uh, to, they haven't been very detailed in terms of the data they're disclosing.
1: Do you think this work would be better done by someone like the Bitcoin Policy Institute?
0: I think what we need is an either Cambridge to increase their efforts, because Cambridge did get cited in this report because they actually are nonpartisan academic. They didn't get cited enough, but they were cited. We need them to reinforce their efforts and do more, or we need alternatively other academic centers to get spun up and uh, start to intermediate this. So talk to Bitcoin miners and help them disclose what their energy mix is. I'm sure a lot of Bitcoin miners want to do this or would do this, but there's not the right venues to distribute it. The U.S. government's not listening to the industry. They didn't cite any BMC data whatsoever. So it's a, a big loss for the BMC because they do all this work and the government didn't acknowledge it at all. So what we need are nonpartisan groups. Maybe lobbyists or these um, think tanks like the Bitcoin Policy Org would be, um, you know, suitable or useful there. But I think what we really need is just entities that have no specific bias or mandate uh, that aren't even industry affiliated that are servicing this data.
1: I, I wonder if I wonder if we could temp free up into it. I like the work that Ovik Roy does talking about raising up economic opportunity for those who need it most. And well, I, th- I think we've got to share it with him today. Um, I wonder, because they've talked about Bitcoin loosely, they've talked about uh, closing the wealth gap. And I wonder if there's something they could do with explaining uh, the benefits of Bitcoin.
0: Yeah. That might I mean, be an interesting one. The burden is kind of on us yeah. to be transparent and clear about this. We're not going to get Chinese or Kazakh miners to you know, yeah. dox themselves or whatever, but more hash rate than ever is in sort of lit Western markets. Mm. More hash rate than ever is publicly traded. Um, the biggest miners in the world will, um, will probably also do a listing soon. So there is a better environment for this knowledge to be distributed than ever, but we're not doing a good job of it. I think if we did a better job it would be harder to issue talking points like this. Mm. But we do need more detailed data because really there's a data gap in this debate and where that gap exists, people like DeVries fill the gap. Mm. You don't want DeVries to be filling your gaps. Agreed, agreed. Uh, some people ask me if I you know, wanted to like confront the authors of this report or whatever. Um, I don't really even care to talk to them, to be honest. Like, my objective was to show that we as Bitcoiners have a better, like, understanding of this debate than they do. And I think I proved that with this. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of claims that are false. If you look at the Pinocchios, uh, it's covered in Pinocchios. (laughs) Even one of the first paragraphs bothered me so much. So, and it, like, ancillary claims that they didn't need to lie about, but they did. So, like, uh, they said this one thing about... Just for background context, they said, like, oh, there's, you know, X many billion in uh, climate change-related disasters this year. So I followed the link, and the link goes, yeah, right there. Three Pinocchios. It. So I gave them three Pinocchios. So they said, climate change is expensive. In 2021, it costs US $145 billion. You go to footnote five, you follow the link, it's right at the end of the document.
1: Stop looking in the footnote.
0: Okay? <laughs> it is, it's all the way at the bottom. <laughs> it's a document that says these are weather disasters, so there's a big difference between climate and weather, right? These are not um, these are not disasters, so you know it's a whole thing to like go through it. So this is actually a government source too, so it's crazy that they got this wrong. This is a figure tallying up all of the weather-related disasters. Now, you can't attribute those all to climate, right? Maybe some, right? But you can't attribute all weather events in the US to climate change. Of course, you can't. And so it's just like a stupid thing to lie about, right? Why would they lie about that? Lie or lazy? Either. But there's a huge difference between the two, Hmm. right? Hmm. So, I mean, maybe some smart scientists would be like, look, weather is 30% worse than ever because of climate change but that's not what they're doing, right? They're just attributing all weather events to climate change. So it's like stupid stuff like that, which is like, why, you know, why, why do that? Um, And so, yeah, I mean, my, my whole objective here was just to really meticulously go through their document and show that they don't have a better command of the facts than we do. They're relying on bad data. They're relying on bad sources and academics and um, they should do better basically, and I hope they take that to heart.
1: And if people want to read your response, it's nickcarter.info.
0: Yeah, it's all there. And um, the annotated document, I don't even know if I would bother with it. It's, you know, but the point is just to grade it like it's an academic exercise.
1: Fantastic. Uh, great work, Nick. Appreciate you coming on explaining this and uh, to everyone else and doing the work again. Um, I know you've had... Uh, 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 interesting time in the last few months. Um, But uh, I think you're one of the most important people in Bitcoin. And I love talking to you. And I I really appreciate everything you're doing to support the industry. Keep going. And uh, whenever we're back here again, I'm sure we'll find an excuse to talk to you again. Um, Keep going, man. Thanks, Peter. Okay, what do you make of that? Do you enjoy that? Obviously, it's great to get Nick back on the show. One of the best Bitcoiners we have out there his work is always consistently brilliant, especially when he's pulling apart work like this report from the White House. Now, I hope you enjoyed it. If you've got any questions about it, you can reach out to me. My email address is hello at what I do reply to everyone. And I've also got another interview with Nick and Elaine Retick dropping in a couple of weeks where we get into proof of work versus proof of stake, specifically some of the flaws that are becoming apparent with the ETH merge. Apart from that, I'm going to be out in Lugano this week in Switzerland. I'm going to be there for the Plan B conference. I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to be interviewing Julian Assange's wife, father, and brother. So a very important interview. I hope to see some of you out there. Uh, Football is crushing. We won again this week with 14 points clear. The team is doing really well. Thanks for everyone who supported that. We even had some people flying for Germany for a game. So, look, I really appreciate everyone who's getting behind the team. Listen, I love you all. I hope you're all doing well. This sideways bear market seems to be dragging on, but... Let's just focus on the mission. Let's focus on Bitcoin. And as I said, if you want to reach out to me? It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Please do get in touch. Look forward to hearing from you. All right, have a great week, and I'll see you all on Wednesday.